so hello, welcome to week four of Atheism for Lent. Uh, this week, I'm going to call this week the functionalist critique of religion, the functionalist kind of negation or the functionalist atheism, right? Uh, now, what we've done up until now is you have done one turn of the wheel, the dialectic wheel. There's the affirmation, and the affirmation at the very beginning in week one was God exists, here's the arguments for a being, an object, out there called God. Then the second week we had the negation of that, and the negation was uh, reflections on the, the failure of these arguments or the lack of necessity of these arguments or even positive arguments against the existence of God. So that was the negation. Um, or a series of negations. So affirmation, negation, and then last week was the negation of negation. And what that was, was that it fully takes the negation on of atheism, fully takes on all of those critiques, the richness of them at their most mature, at their most uh, thought through, at their strongest, takes them all on board but somehow turns that into an affirmation of sorts. So that's what the negation of negation means. Uh, Slavoj Žižek, the philosopher, uh, very helpfully uses the example of a, a zombie movie to understand what negation of negation means. So you have affirmation, life, you have negation, death, and then you have negation of negation, the undead. So undead, right? Dead is a negation, and then un is another negation to untie or whatever is to negate. So when you put un and dead together, what you have is something that seems to be both alive and dead, right? Um, another example is uh, you've got consciousness, right? What we're conscious of. You've got the negation of that or maybe, um, yeah, of sorts of negation, let's call it the subconscious. You have what you are not aware of, what is beneath your understanding, right? So subconscious is sometimes a term used by unions. You won't hear me use it, um, but uh, some psychologists use it. But a subconscious can refer to what maybe Freud called the pre-conscious, what's going on underneath. And then there's the unconscious, right? And the unconscious is an awareness that you're not aware of a knowledge that you don't know, right? Not hidden in the depths, but, but weirdly hidden on the surface. So that's affirmation, negation, negation of negation. And you've experienced it over the last three weeks. So that's one full turn. Now, and I say what the, what the mystics did is they end up with you know, theism, atheism, and then a theistic atheism, a kind of a theism, an affirmation that is always negating itself. And that's the first way in which atheism and theism intertwine. And it's really sparked off by Pseudo-Dionysius, uh, but also it's in the biblical scriptures as well. You can find elements of this kind of mystical notion. Um, and yes, yeah, so you've, there, it is a radical negation, but, but that affirms something, affirms something that was really hidden as well in the original affirmation. So you've gone through that journey. That's one turn of the dial. Now we're going into the second turn of the dial, but it doesn't start from scratch because what we can do is we can say that this negation of negation is the new affirmation. So that becomes the starting point for this, the next three weeks, right? Is uh, 
or the next two weeks, yet you've had now an affirmation of a type of uh, hypertheism, right? a type of hyper-existence of a God beyond all being, where all predicates, all qualities drop from, right? So we can kind of, the mystic has no doubt that God is, but whatever way they describe that God, including the word is, uh, is inappropriate, right? So all the predicates, all the qualities of God are the things that the mystics, to a greater or lesser extent, yeah, um, doubt or reject. Uh, but they have this sense of this hyper-existence. Um, so this week, you're about to encounter the negation of that affirmation. Um, and the person that you're going to be kicking off with is Feuerbach, who is always a bit of a favorite of mine. He's kind of like a minor philosopher in the canon, but uh, he's very, very important. He's kind of sandwiched between two great philosophers, right? Hegel on one side, Marx on the other. Feuerbach is the bridge between Hegel and Marx for anyone who's interested in philosophy. Feuerbach didn't write that much, uh, but a lot of his work was taken on by Marx and then by others. And his work is, you know, profoundly interesting. He's a very clear writer at times. Sometimes it's quite technical, but he's a, in terms of philosophers, he's relatively uh, clear, uh, very thought through, very subtle. And he really opens up a way of thinking that is very, very um, valuable, that opens up all of these uh, really disciplines from psychology and psychoanalysis, sociology, like a lot of the disciplines of the 19th and 20th century, kind of Feuerbach is in the background to some extent, and I'll try and touch on why that is. But uh, Feuerbach is the first to kind of systematically negate the mystics in a really interesting way. So if the negation is a type of inversion, right, what is the inversion of Feuerbach and these other thinkers? Well, the inversion is uh, maybe double. Uh, so it's an inversion from heaven's earth, right? It's an inversion from kind of thinking about God as so utterly beyond uh, to the idea of God and religion as things that reflect ourselves. And then another thing that really opens up with Feuerbach is an inversion where the mystics, right, the mystics say, the, the unimportant bit is the predicates, the qualities, the things that you say God is. Every time you say those, you're missing something. They're, they don't fit. They're not right. You did Mamanides last week, and uh, you'll have seen that. There's a type of cataphatic theology, which is a negation theology that always kind of says that whatever you're saying about God isn't right, okay? Feuerbach kind of brilliantly says, no, 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 it's the other way around. It's the predicates that are important, right? That's the important bit, and that's the stuff that you can't really doubt. Um, the existence, that's the thing that, you know, is, is irrelevant, especially, like, once you take all the predicates away from something, like, what are you left with? I mean, kind of a, effectively nothing, right? Even if you say it's a hyper-reality, if you take all of the predicates away from me, you take my height and my accent and my uh, color of hair, and you take you take all the qualities I have. Like, what are you left with? Like, nothing. Uh, there'll be nothing there. And Feuerbach says, no, no, no. Religion and God, the word God and the and the word religion describe something human, all too human. 
And that's the brilliant bit of it. Like that's the, that's the meat of religion. Most religious people are not interested or don't have these peak experiences and they don't go into the mountains and live on nuts and have these ecstatic experiences. And most religious people are not like constantly saying what God is not. Religion and God, as it's used by the vast majority of people, is deeply connected with the qualities of mercy and justice and retribution or love or jealousy or whatever it is that, that one puts onto the gods. And so Feuerbach doesn't kind of argue, like give a philosophical argument against the existence of something out there. He just says, let's imagine that when we talk about God and when we're talking about religion, we're talking about ourselves. We're saying something profound about the essence of human beings. Uh, does that explain things? Is that explanation useful? Does it provide insight? Does it open up new avenues of thought? Uh, does it benefit humanity? And Feuerbach then kind of like gives an alternative explanation for God and for religion that is, that is like a, a human thing. And it is profoundly kind of interesting what he does because he kind of talks about projection. He says that we project our own essence, who we are, onto our gods. And in a way, when you look at God, you're looking at a mirror. God is the un your unknown face projected out. And of course, that projection stuff is then really taken up in psychoanalysis where every day around the world, hundreds of thousands of people are engaging in projection and transference. Uh, well, we're all doing that, but in the clinic, that mechanism of projection where you might hate somebody um, and then realize, oh, I hate that part of myself, right? You know, your enemy, the person that you think is so unlike you, the complete opposite to you. Uh, you actually hate them because there's something in them that reminds you of yourself or of your relationship with your parents or something like that. And that's always very disturbing. But that's, that's how dialectics works, by the way. It's like non-dialectic thought, and that's everywhere. And you see it as, like, you often use the example of YouTube because public intellectuals on YouTube um, are usually non-dialectical thinkers. So for example, you might have the idea that the Democrat Party and the Republican Party are completely separate. They're different. They're, they're set apart from each other, right? One has got nothing to do with the other. And you want to kind of, one side wants to get rid of the other side, right? And that would make life better. A dialectic thinker is very good at drawing out how actually they're intertwined in various ways. And sometimes they say what we hate in the, say, for example, you hate the Republican Party and you hate maybe the religious right. Sometimes, this is just this is anecdotal, but it does happen quite often that you find that maybe that person used to be a very religious young person, right? A child or was brought up in a very religious environment and, and their d deep dislike is at least partly connected with them fighting a part of themselves. And so the thing that they think they're separate from Actually, if they're able to, in the right environment, they'll be able to see that it's kind of a mirror uh, reflecting something of themselves back to themselves. So that's, you know, obviously that's psychoanalytic stuff. But Feuerbach really has this notion with God. 
And he comes up with this idea, uh, or develops this idea, that um, in order to come to know yourself, you have to first alienate yourself from yourself. You have to first put yourself out into the world, see it, judge it, understand it, and then take it back into yourself. So there's this process of you, you alienate yourself, you see yourself outside yourself, and you take it back. Now, again, this is the basis of what you have in Lacan, the mirror uh, stage, right, where an infant doesn't come to know themselves through some sort of internal meditation. They first experience themselves externally, right, in the mirror, in inverted commas, it might be the mirror of their brother or their sister, the mirror of their parents saying, you're like this person, you're like that person. You know, they, you begin to objectify yourself externally, maybe as to say, looking at your brother or your sister and admiring them and wanting to be like them. And then your parents say, oh yes, you're like your brother. So you, you put your essence out into the other and then through your, your parents, you're able to reconnect that with yourself or connect that with yourself. So the mirror stage is the idea that you have to have a distance. And so Feuerbach has this idea that in order for humanity to come to know itself, it has to project its essence outward. We can only come to, like, and he has, I, he did have this in the original reflection. I took it out because it was a bit too philosophical. Um, but uh, it was the section one before the section two that you'll be reading. So if you like this, go and read section one. But in section one, uh, Feuerbach makes an interesting point that uh, most animals, right, cannot think of themselves as a species. They can't, they don't distance themselves from themselves and look at what the essence of a dog is, if they're a dog or the essence of a horse is. They're an individual, they're conscious of the world, but they're not conscious of themselves as a species, as the kind of like, what is it that is, that is kind of like uh, essential to their mode of being in the world. And he says, what happened for humans at some point is that we started to get a sense for what it is to be human, the values and the possibilities uh, involved in being a human being. But we did that through religion. We started by seeing God as just, as jealous, as loving, as you know, so all of these things that we are, we started by putting them out onto God and seeing them in God. And that then provides a mirror that in one sense impoverishes us because we put all of these qualities onto God, but is the stepping stone towards taking that back and saying, oh, that's, that's what humanity can be. And but God is kind of like the name for all the highest qualities, all the best things. And so Feuerbach goes like, when you look at God in its most abstract form, you're seeing something of what all the possibilities of humanity are. And Feuerbach called himself a friend of the theologians. He did not want to, he loved religion. He did not want to abolish it. He was incredibly theologically educated. He was an expert in Luther. Uh, he really knew his theology well. And he, he just said, listen, the truth of theology is anthropology. He said, theology has this incredible role, this function, this incredible function 
to help us see ourselves, to help us see what humanity can be, to crystallize that, and then to bring it back, bring it back into ourselves and live into that so that baptismal water becomes real living water that people can drink, so that the, the bread and the wine becomes real bread and real wine. And there's a sense in which the truth of theology at its core is to bring transformation to the world. So that's, Feuerbach opens this up in a very profound way with his claim saying that theology is anthropology, that he's a friend of the theologians, that theology to fulfill itself will ultimately die, right? And resurrect in a very secular material way. But it has a function, a necessary function uh, to do that. Now, the other thinkers that you're going to encounter um, there's, there's ways in which they're all interconnected. As I said, you're going to meet you, uh, Freud, and Freud and Feuerbach, you know, there's connection there with projection. Um, you have also Simone de Beauvoir and uh, Sartre, who, were, who are very similar, the existential thinkers, uh, who were in a relationship and kind of like influenced each other. And you see a lot of Sartre in de Beauvoir's work. Um, and you have uh, Emma Goldman, an uh, anarchist thinker, very passionately uh, uh, like a activist who very passionately dislikes religion. <laughs> um, so you have these different things, but they all have a sense in which religion has a function, uh, not always a good function. So you have on one extreme, Feuerbach, who says, listen, I'm a friend of theology, uh, religion is a wonderful, is a necessary thing because how else would we come to know ourselves? Not as individuals, because I come to know myself as an individual through mirroring you, like I need other people. So he's taken this from Hegel, is that, you know, solipsism is impossible because to come to know yourself, you have to see yourself through another's eyes. Um, there's that idea that, you know, I am not who I think I am and I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am, right? Uh, which is kind of like, I construct myself through the experience of being looked upon by you. Like that's a, that's a defining dimension of subjectivity. It doesn't come about in some sort of vat. It comes about through the mirror of the other's face, having someone else kind of gazing upon you and initially experiencing yourself as an object for the other. You know, that's why children often talk about themselves in the third person. And they'll count themselves, you know, if you go like, how many brothers and sisters have you got? And they'll count one, two, three, right? They'll count themselves. They'll treat themselves as an object because in many ways they begin to first experience themselves as an object that is brought into being by the other's gaze. I mean, that's maybe one of the reasons why children get so frightened um, at night whenever, you know, a parent is, is leaving. And in one sense, they get their being from being seen as an object, right? And then gradually subjectivize themselves, right? So in, this, in the same way that we as, in, as individuals and infants need the mirror of our parents and the mirror of society, so Feuerbach says, well, humanity as a whole needs something writ large. And he says it's God. Now he has a reason why there's a screen called God and that's partly connected to our desire for love, our desire for security. Um, that cannot be fully met in this world. And so we can project, we can, or we can hope for 
some being that can bring protection and unending love. But then everything we project onto that screen is, is ourselves. Now, interestingly, Karl Marx, who's not this, in this year, I usually have him in, but I don't have him this year, he takes all this on. And the one thing he critiques Feuerbach for, and Steiner does this as well, is, and I think this is very good, uh, Marx says, religion and God doesn't tell us our eternal essence. It's really an encyclopedia that tells us about the values of the current system we're in and also kind of makes that look ahistorical. So in other words, religion kind of like takes whatever the historical uh, epoch we're in, makes it saintly, kind of gives it a, 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 a halo and also kind of says, this is the way it should always be, right? Now, Marx actually wrote very uh, lovingly about religion at times. He said it was the heart of a heartless nation, the soul of a soulless condition. Um, but he thought that it was a painkiller. It was a drug that helped you deal with the sufferings of life, but not change life, right? But he kind of agreed with Feuerbach that religion tells us something, but not really about our essence. It tells us something about our world. And also it, it's an ideology, which means unfortunately, it also says the way the world currently is, is the way it should be. So for Marx, he said like religion is, tends to have a conservative element, i.e. to conserve, right? Rather than to evoke change. Um, and, then, and then out of this came liberation theology, et cetera, et cetera, which is a theology that attempted to, to evoke change in the material world, which we'll get to maybe next week. Um, or the week after next, sorry. So Marx opens up actually the way of existentialism. And I have Sartre in this year uh, for the first time. And Sartre is interesting because again, for him, one of the things that religion does is it has a function which is uh, to help us avoid um, a, a confrontation with our own freedom, right? So what religion, can do for us is it can weirdly help us feel uh, that we that not everything rests on our shoulders. So for Jean-Paul Sartre, we are responsible for everything we do. Uh, whatever you believe, you're responsible for it. And that's a huge burden. And it's not, Sartre's not saying you should be, Sartre says you are. He says to be a subject is to be responsible for your being in the world. And he says, we try to escape that in so many ways, whether it's going to a palm reader to try to work out whether to break up with someone or not, or whether it's using the Bible as a textbook for how to live, whether it's praying for an answer to something, right? We, we want to escape, we want someone else to make the decision for us of what we should do. Jean-Paul Sartre famously has an example of a student who came to him and said, during the Second World War, he said, I, I have a dilemma. I have an elderly mother. Uh, my brother and her son uh, died fighting the Nazis. And if, I, if she lost me, she would be heartbroken. But I also want to fight against this evil and I want to avenge my brother's death. So I have an option, either I stay with my mother and help her, or I travel to the UK and I join uh, the, the soldiers there and I fight Germany. And he's trying to figure out what to do. Uh, be a massive part of a, of a small thing or a small part of something massive. And Jean-Paul Sartre uses this as an example of going like, he's looking for advice off me. He wants someone to make the decision. 
the sad thing is there is no one that can make that decision but him and you have to kind of do it in fear and trembling and Sartre very brilliantly says even if you believe right you believe in God and even if you believe you can pray and God will give you an answer so imagine you're Abraham and you hear the voice you know kill Isaac he says even then you have to decide whether you think that's an angel or a demon or whether it's you know God or just your inner monologue so even then you're not free you're not you're not free from your freedom right you, even whenever you think God has spoken to you you're still responsible for interpreting whether to believe it or not right um so Sartre kind of like he had a number of things to say about religion but the thing that you're going to see today or in a couple of days is that he sees religion as a type of bad faith and bad faith is a way of trying to avoid your freedom avoid making your own decisions having those decisions made by other people so it has a function but it's not a great function and that's similar to freud who saw religion as having a function but not necessarily a good function. It might be a way of mitigating your anxiety, helping you feel a little bit of control in the world. So just as kids have obsessive compulsive disorders often, they're not really disorders, but they do a lot of compulsive things, touch uh, to the taps the same number of times or not walk on the cracks. So religion offers obsessional practices that are similar to those things that we do as children and that some people do as adults. Um, Whereas you know, Freud said, obsession is personal religion. Obsessional, sorry, obsessional compulsive rituals are a person's personal religion. In other words, you know, religion as we, as we know it is a kind of public uh, shared form of obsessive compulsive rituals that have similar functions. So, oh yeah, so I was saying, you know, on, on one side you've got Feuerbach, who's like a friend of the theologians. On the other side, the other extreme is Goldman, Emma Goldman, who in a very fiery sermon, like peace, you're going to see, she thinks religion, its only function is to oppress, uh, to keep people downtrodden, to keep the powerful powerful and the powerless powerless. So you kind of got those two extremes. And then you've got... Uh, you know, I mentioned Sartre there. Uh, you've got Freud, I mentioned. Uh, you've got Simone de Beauvoir, who has a really interesting argument in The Second Sex, where she, she focuses on, obviously, women and how religion, it's, it's quite subtle, because she's not saying religion oppresses women by telling them to be meek and, you know, and, you know, and, and submissive and all of that. She says, weirdly, religion actually at a kind of phantasmic level is quite liberating for a lot of women and, you've, and so women can participate in religion and get a lot out of it. Uh, and she says that religion can have very emancipatory ideas, but she says the problem is actually uh, precisely because of that it's not emancipatory. Like often it's like equality, but spiritual equality, right? Or equality in the next life or it allows you to express your desires, but in a displaced way. So you can have a type of like sexual freedom in, in a type of maybe religious experience rather than kind of by going out and having a sexual experience with somebody else. So she sees religion as oppressive, but in a very interesting way, um, a quite a subtle way. So most of them you're gonna meet this week have, I suppose to a greater or lesser extent, a critical understanding of religion. But, but Feuerbach doesn't... Oh, Schopenhauer. You're going to get Schopenhauer this week. And Schopenhauer 
It's a dialogue, he wrote. And a dialogue between two friends who are talking about the role of religion. And interestingly, people think of Schopenhauer as, you know, he's the pessimist philosopher and he's a pretty grumpy guy. But um, he, uh, he was profoundly influenced by Eastern religions, by Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, he was the first Western philosopher to like, deeply read the, those Eastern texts. And it was because he lived at a time where they were just being translated. Uh, before that, you know, these texts were not available. They weren't there. They weren't in translation. But he lived at a time when these texts were beginning to, say, be translated. He spoke and could read Sanskrit, I think. So he very seriously and very deeply read Eastern philosophies and religious texts, was very influenced by them, understood them very deeply. So he's very influenced by that, but when he talks in this reflection you'll get in a couple of days, he's talking about whether religion has a type of value if it's not taken literally, if you take it more as a metaphor. Is it a type of what he calls metaphysics for the masses? Most people don't have the time or the inclination to read Kant to work out what it is to be ethical, right? Um, so religion can give you a bit of a shortcut. At, at its best, religion can give you stories um, parables that might help you find meaning and morality without, as I say, you know, going through a thousand page tomb of a philosopher. So, but again, he's not saying that that is the case because he's back and forth about it. Like there's one great bit where he, um, one of the people in this dialogue he wrote is kind of saying, well, listen, if religion has metaphorical value, right, you just shouldn't take it literally. It's, a, it's great for helping people be moral and find meaning in their life, but as long as they don't, as long as at least the person who's teaching it doesn't take it literally, right? Um, then he says, well, does that mean you have to lie, that pastors have to lie to the people? Because if the people all knew it was just a story, you know, it would have less appeal. Like the strength of religion is sometimes it's, it's full-bloodedness. So he, one of the figures is asking, well, can you really build a moral system when it's built on a noble lie, right? The, the first act is to lie to the congregation in order to help them uh, have a more moral life. So there's a, there's a questioning back and forth, but Schopenhauer is sensitive to the potential value and function of religion as a metaphysics of the masses, as a way for a lot of people to experience meaning and morality uh, without, as I say, having to you know spend years trying to trying to find meaning and morality on some sort of logical basis. So all of these thinkers, religion has a function, whether it's as I say, a ritual to help deal with anxiety um, that ultimately should be overcome, right? Or whether it's the function of helping us see the essence of humanity as a way of eventually again overcoming that and bringing it into ourselves or whether it's the function of being used to justify the status quo. So the rich stay rich and the poor stay poor and the rich man at his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. One of the verses from All Things Bright and Beautiful, right? Um, uh, or whether it's as a way to try to avoid the terror of our freedom. All of these thinkers see they start with the idea that when we talk about religion and when we talk about God, we're talking about society, subjectivity, talking about defense mechanisms. We're talking about something very human. And as I say, that way of thinking has been incredibly uh, fertile 
in the last 200 years. Incredibly fertile uh, for developing sociological theories of religion. And so sociology is very, very a discipline that kind of comes out at least partly from these kind of ideas. Say psychoanalysis has some elements of this. Um, so very, very profoundly uh, fertile form of thought that you're just going to you know, touch on in the next, the next week. Um, but it's all in the context for this, the context of a negation. It's a kind of going like, hey, you know what? The, the mystics can have their God, but actually we're going to invert it and say all the things that they kind of say are unimportant. That's the important stuff. And the stuff that they think is important, that's unimportant, right? It, it's, it's a materialist critique. And in the same way, because you know why I'm saying affirmation, negation, negation, negation. So week one is a affirmation. That is similar then to week three, which becomes an affirmation, but they are very different, right? They're both affirmations, but they'd have a different quality. And the second affirmation has a, feels a lot richer, right? There's a lot more to it. Then the negation of week two has something in common with the negation of week four, which you're just about to do. But again, you're going to find that they're very different in their negations. And week two, I think, is probably the weakest week in terms of there's a that's the least subtle. This, this week, there's a lot of subtlety in these thinkers, and there's a lot of subtlety in this position. So the, the affirmation negation, the negation of negation that becomes the affirmation that, become, that then creates a new negation, creates a negation of negation. Each time there is a continuity, and there is a connection, and there's a discontinuity, and there is a, an added richness and added texture. So none of these negations have an argument against the existence of God. Um, very few. I mean, Sartre has one, arg one interesting argument against the existence of God and being and nothingness. But like these guys don't really, that's not the question. They're not sitting around saying whether God doesn't exist. What they're saying is God and religion, like these are, these are words that we use. And you can see just like people's dogs kind of look like them, people's gods kind of look like them, right? And let's see where that kind of thinking goes. So that's what you're going to encounter this week, the negation of the mystics through functionalist descriptions of religion. Um, and I will now look to see if you've got any questions in the chat box. Oh, hey, Chris, see you there. Um, I didn't ask you to write questions actually at the beginning, so I don't know if you have. Um, Oh yeah, Kate is saying here something that's important is she says, sorry, all the time change means timings uh, are messed up uh, for a couple of weeks every year and goes back to normal. So yes, I think that's like in a couple of weeks. So there, there will be a time change uh, if you're watching these live. Uh, the best way to know when, when it's going to happen is to click the video in advance and it will tell you when it comes up. So I'm, I'm always sticking with 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. But I say that changes in Europe. So, uh, yeah, it's a good one to know. Um, oh, yeah, Chris Iyer Chris says, Voltaire wrote something along the lines of, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since then, man, being a gentleman, has been returning the favour. That's exactly it. And also, isn't it Voltaire who said, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Um, so Voltaire is 
very, very interesting and I basically, like, almost you say that these, these, a lot of the thinkers this week would almost go, it doesn't matter if God exists or not. We did invent him, right? The God that we talk of, the God, the, the religion that we've created is our creation. Uh, and yeah, so Voltaire, it's almost, again, that's the negation that you're talking about, Chris, is Voltaire goes like, oh yeah, we say that we are, that we arise from God. But what Feuerbach does is he kind of says, well, actually, you know, God is a reflection of our essence, of us. Oh yeah, and Protagoras, Chris is quoting, yes, man is the measure of all things. Um, and what, the, what other yardstick do we have? Yeah, Protagoras was actually, we had him in last year, and that was Protagoras, one of the earliest critiques of religion. And yeah, Chris, that's a great connection. Right back with the early Greeks, you have Protagoras going that, that, er, that basically, what was the quote that you learned? Oh yeah, man is the measure of all things. That we, there's a, the yardstick, like what we speak of is ourselves. Um, always what we say is a reflection of something of ourselves. So right back, that, that's an early critique. Um, all right, thank you so much. I should have said questions, so that's good. But I'm quite happy to, I think I've waffled on for long enough.